Amen. If you would, would you take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And I don't know about you, but I'm really appreciative of our singers and musicians this morning for leading us and for pointing us to the sweetness of Christ, preparing us to open up God's Word and to to see how God has revealed Himself to us as His children and the grace that we receive from our God who loves to pour out His abundant grace on His children. We're talking about the means of maturity, the ways that God uses to grow us up to look more like Jesus. And we've talked about the Word of God. We've talked about prayer, why prayer is vital for us as believers. We saw last week that we experienced the grace of God through prayer as He pours out His strength and power on the weak and the needy like us. And today we're going to focus on how we pray. And where better to turn than the model prayer the Lord Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. I'm telling you, if you ever want to make people feel uncomfortable, just ask them to pray when they're not expecting it. You notice it. Don't ever do it around the dinner table and ask somebody who wasn't expecting it to pray for the food. You might as well have asked them to stand up in front of 10,000 people and sing. It can be overwhelming. It can be intimidating. When you think about it, you're just communicating to God. But to think about entering the presence of the Most High to lift up your requests to Him, that's a nerve-wracking thing. And we see examples of it all around us. One of my favorite examples is from... A movie called Meet the Parents. (laughs) In this movie, a guy named Greg is really trying to impress his future in-laws. And in order to do that, while they sit around the table together to eat, he's asked to pray. Let me share his prayer with you. It is appropriate. Oh, dear God, thank you. You're such a good God to us, a kind and gentle and accommodating God. And we thank you, oh, sweet, sweet Lord of hosts, for the smorgasbord you have so aptly lain at our table this day and each day by day. Day by day by day. Oh, dear Lord, three things we pray. To love thee more dearly. To see thee more clearly. To follow thee more nearly. Day by day by day. Amen. (laughs) To watch that prayer in the movie is so awkward. Because you can tell he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know how to say it. But the only thing he can think of is make it sound as good as you can. Who 
uses the word smorgasbord in a prayer to God? Who tries to rhyme things like dearly and clearly and nearly? But to be honest with you, this is how we often feel when we have to pray. We think that somehow we have to impress God or make it sound right or use the right flowery language or make it go on long enough. Can I tell you, God isn't impressed, nor does he need our flowery language. God doesn't call us to pray because he needs to figure stuff out, because he needs some knowledge. God knows what we need before we ever say it. So why would we come to God with flowery words or long, drawn-out prayers as a way to try and look good? What if we ran to God with simple petitions? What if we ran to God just to communicate our heart's desire to Him? See, one thing I believe we see from Matthew chapter 6 is there's a difference in how Christians pray. And that difference is so important. I'm going to lay this out for us in a few areas, but I'm going to read it first from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. I'm going to ask you, if you're physically able, and because we love God's word, if you'll stand up with me as we read it together, that we might learn how to pray effectively and in a way that honors God. Here is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Heavenly Father, we ask you to teach us today. To help us to see the right desires to express in our prayers. God, that we might see the grace that you bring. Not in overcomplicated, wordy prayers, but in the simple petitions and cries of our hearts. God, may we truly see you as our Father who loves to hear from us, and who is ready to act. Oh Lord, we give you praise and glory and honor. We ask you to teach us this morning by your word so that we might honor you more. Help us to pray for your honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated for a moment. Verses 5 through 8, I believe Jesus starts by showing us that Christians pray with different desires. Christians pray with godly desires. Jesus calls out the prayers of the hypocrites and the Gentiles, or, or Gentiles is another way of saying the world. See, they prayed in such a way that people would what? Honor and revere and glorify them. And in verse 5, the hypocrites pray, we're told, so that the crowds would see them and think that they're really, really holy. 
The hypocrite is a description of someone who's two-faced, someone who puts on one mask for a particular scene and then takes it off for another. When we pray, may we be content to make our petitions before an audience of one, not so that others would see us as great, but that our God would know that we need him. See, we're told that believers are to pray with a godly desire to make much of their father, not of themselves. Notice the repetition of the phrase, your father, that is used throughout this text. God is the one we adore in our prayers. And it's crucial to see clearly the relationship we have with him. Our relationship to God as Christians is the relationship of a child to a father. When we come, we come not to declare what God must do or to manipulate him to work for us. We pray as children who are needy, who are utterly dependent on the power of our Father to bring to us what he sees as good. This is why we ask our children to come to us, that they would come dependent on us, knowing they need us and knowing that what we provide is for their good. Jesus says, as the Gentiles prayed with many words in hopes of being heard because of their eloquence, we as Christians, we pray knowing God already knows what we desire. Effective prayers aren't the ones marked by many words or vain repetitions, but by sincerely pleading before our Father who desires to care for us. And I want to be careful because I think oftentimes the Lord's Prayer can be misleading or, or it can confuse people. Most of the time because you hear it said over and over in different settings. But here's the thing. I don't believe Jesus intended for his disciples to simply regurgitate and repeat the same words he's using. I don't think he meant it as a ritualistic prayer to just say over and over and over again. But rather what Jesus was giving was a model of what our prayers should look like. Charles Spurgeon said, to repeat a form of prayer a very large number of times has always seemed to the ignorantly religious to be a praiseworthy thing. But assuredly, it is not so. It's a mere exercise of memory and of the organs of noise-making. It is absurd to imagine that such a parrot exercise can be pleasing to the living God. God does not need us to pray for his information, for he knoweth what things ye need nor to repeat the prayer over and over for his persuasion, for as our Father he is willing to bless us. Therefore let us not be superstitious and dream that there is virtue in much speaking, in the multitude of words, even in prayer, there wanteth not sin. Repetitions we may have, but not vain repetitions. Counting beads and reckoning the time occupied in devotion are both idle things. Christians' prayers are measured by weight and not by length. Many of the most prevailing prayers have been as short as they were strong. God's not asking us to simply regurgitate something over and over as a, somehow that's pleasing to him. But Jesus gives us a model of prayer, a simple model that might help us as we come to God to express our hearts to him. And that God-honoring prayer is what is found in this text. So we've talked about the importance of prayer last week. Now we turn to how we should pray. Number one, what I believe we see from the model prayer that Jesus gives is that praying, we, that we should pray that God would be honored. We pray that God would be honored. Look at verse 9 with me. Jesus says, pray then like this, 
So while the hypocrites and Gentiles pray to honor themselves, we pray to honor the Father. And he says, pray then like this. So he, he puts his model prayer in contrast to the hypocrites and the Gentiles. He's already pointed out the sinful desires that they have. And from that example, Jesus go, is going to present a godly one. Notice first that prayer is a regular part of the Christian life. It's in the present tense. Jesus says that we pray continuously. We also know that from the original language that this is written in, the verb tense tells us that all of these petitions are urgent requests before God. These are all used to express the fact that we urgently need these things. And the first thing we urgently need to petition is that God would be honored in our prayers. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Consider the grand thought that the one true God who is enthroned in the heavens grants us access to come to him, but this is reserved for those who know him as Father. See, prayer is a gracious gift of our Father to us. And this prayer is to be marked by a hallowing of God's name. What's that mean? Well, it means to hold God's name in reverence and awe and honor. It means that we are reminded of his glory and grandeur when we pray. We're reminded of what we look like in comparison to him. To hallow his name means that we stand in awe of who he is and recognize that we aren't him. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson said, It's not that God's name can in itself be made more holy than it is, but rather we are reminded how much we need his help to recognize just how holy or separate from us he really is. And indeed, we even need his help to come to him with the sense of awe and wonder that is appropriate for his glory. See, see how needy we are? We even need God's help to help us to see how great he is. Because far too often we run in prayer to God to simply make our names great. To make us look good. So what does it look like to come to God with a sense of awe and wonder? What's it look like to come to God in a way that is appropriate for his glory? What's it look like to pray with God's holiness in mind? What do you think? How do we pray in a way that demonstrates awe and honor of God, how do we pray in a way that has God's holiness in mind? What are the possible ways we could do that? Humble? What does that, humil what does that humility look like when you pray? Say that again? Well, head down can be posture, right? You can do it that way. Praying for other people. Okay, so not just going in for your own name and for your own desires, but going in so that God might do something for someone else. It's good. How, what other ways do we honor God and, see, and walk into prayer with awe of him? Thankfully, right? Absolutely. Not walking in demanding. What's that? Forgiveness, absolutely. We're going to see Jesus is going to touch on that. Yeah, and that it's his kingdom, right? That he's the one in charge. 
See, I, I, sometimes I walk into prayer and I'm like, okay, God, time for you to get busy doing stuff. You got to do that. I need you to do that. I need you, as if he's sitting there waiting for me to give him some orders. Maybe the way I show awe and wonder of God is I don't run into prayer to bark stuff at him. Or to say, chip, chip, I need you to go to work. Maybe we show honor and awe of God by realizing that prayer is a privilege. That God allows us to come into his presence. See, in our prayers, we express a godly desire to honor him and to stand in awe of his majesty. What's that mean for us as a church? Well, it means we don't approach him haphazardly either. And we don't turn prayer in our service into just the next step on the agenda. But we call out to God because we realize that not only as individuals, but just as much as a church, we need God. Someone can say it. Thank you so much. As a church, we need God. And we come here not to just get through the to-do list and check it off. We come here because we need God and we cry out desperately to Him in a way to honor His good name, to come in awe of the fact that we as Christians get to gather together and we get to petition our God in His presence. What a glorious gift. And oh, how necessary it is to start at that point. So now number two. Not only do we pray that God would be honored, but we also pray for the increasing display of God's reign. R-E-I-G-N. We like reign too, but we mean God's rule. We pray for the increasing display of God's reign. Look at verse 10. Jesus says in verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One pastor theologian I really, really enjoy is Martin Lloyd-Jones just because he's very wise, but things bother him. And when things bothered him, he was very clear about what he thought. And one thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones points out about this text, about this petition, is that it flows from the previous one. As we increasingly recognize the awe and majesty of God, we also realize that much of our world stands in opposition to him. Much of our world doesn't recognize the sovereign rule of God. See, don't be mistaken, there are two kingdoms at work. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of this world. And much of humanity does not recognize God as the true king and worship him. In fact, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So even there we see that there is opposition to God's reign, opposition to God's kingdom. The God of this world, he says, has blinded See, when we pray that God's name would be hallowed and honored and revered, we're come face to face with the fact that not everybody does. That much of this world doesn't honor him. So what do we desire from God? We desire and we pray for an increasing display of the fact that he is the king. 
Because it's not as if God is weak or incapable of conquering. From the Bible we learn that God's reign, his kingdom has come through his son, Jesus. In fact, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 at the outset of ministry. We're told now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus came, guess what he brought with him? The reign of God. The kingdom, he says, is near or at hand. We also learn that from God's word, the kingdom of God is increasing today. The, the rule and reign of God is increasingly expanding. And we see it in the hearts of people who are being changed and redeemed by Jesus. That God is rescuing and ransoming sinners. And by, by doing that, he is actually expanding the display of his reign over all creation. We also know that there is coming a day at the return of Jesus when the kingdom of God will be fully consummated. All evil, sin, death, and Satan will be put away and conquered finally and completely. We sang about that this morning. So the kingdom of God has come, is now, and one day will be. We live under the reign of God, and he's increasingly displaying that reign throughout history and even in our day. And he will until the day his kingdom is consummated in full through his son. So what do we pray for? Well, we daily pray that God's kingdom, his reign, will continue to increase throughout creation. That his kingdom would continue to expand and reach to the ends of the earth through changed hearts, recognizing his glory and worshiping him. And as such, the kingdom of God is a primary concern for Christians. We don't just pray that our kingdoms expand. We pray that God's kingdom would. See, this is connected to the desire for God's reign to increase. We pray that God would be furthering his will even on this earth. He says, pray then, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We believe that God knows what's best in all of our circumstances. Don't you? Do you believe that God's will is best for whatever you face? If you do, if you truly believe that, then you pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we truly believe God brings good to his people, that his will is actually for our good, then why wouldn't we Pray that every area of our lives and every part of this world would see the will of God realized. And Jesus even gave us the example of this in the garden. Right? He prayed the will of the Father would be accomplished. Not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus was so committed in obedience to the Father's will that he was willing to take up a cross and die. Jesus trusted the Father's goodness even through suffering. And if we're going to pray that the Father's will be done, we should be seeking out what God's will is then. How do you know what God's will is? Well, the only way we know what God wills is through His Word. 
And in his word, he has revealed to us what we are to be about and what he is accomplishing. So if we're going to be praying God's will, we should probably be familiar with what that is. How else can we walk in obedience to the will of God? And just so you know, it is God's desire for his people to submit to him. To walk in obedience to his revealed will. And as such, we pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is God's will done in heaven? If you want it on earth as it is in heaven, what's it like in heaven? No sin, which means God's will is always done. What should we as believers be praying for? God, would your will be done here like it is there? Would we walk in righteousness and in obedience to what you've shown us? God, would we devote ourselves to you and to walk in a way that would honor you? So we pray that the reign of God will continue to increase and spread to every human heart, that the world will be filled with obedience to God's will. That's what we pray for. We don't just pray for us. We pray that God's will would be done in the lives of the people who live next door to us. That they would trust him and be obedient to him. That's what we pray for. While also recognizing that this will only be true at the consummation of the kingdom. We're not always going to walk perfectly and the people around us aren't always going to walk perfectly. But that doesn't mean we don't pursue it. That doesn't mean we forsake the will of God. We still pray that God's will would be done, knowing that we're longing for the day when it will. And Jesus tells us about that. God tells us about that in his word. In fact, God ends his word on that note. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. John writes, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. What is the response? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. See, in our prayers, we express a godly desire for God's reign and will to increasingly be displayed in and around us. And that means as a church, what we should desire in our prayers is not our kingdom to grow, but God's kingdom to grow. That we're praying that God would expand his kingdom and as such, we might enjoy the increase of his reign all around us, whether it's here or the church down the street. That God's will would be done, that his reign would expand, so we as a church should desire that God would be glorified as his reign increases. And that we get to be a small part of that. Number three, we also pray for God's provision. Verse 11, in Jesus' model prayer, he says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. Okay, so think about this. As we pray for God's reign to expand and his will to be done, it leads us into a prayer that God would provide for us what his perfect will deems we need. So starting with the focus on the glory of God and his kingdom, only now do we turn our attention to our needs. So when we pray, guess what we should start with? God, his glory, his kingdom, his will, and then our petitions of our needs. I'll be honest with you, I get that backwards a lot. I run to God and go, I need this, 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 and I need it quick. Oh, and by the way, I love you and I think you're great. 
But Jesus says in the model he gives, start with the awe and wonder of God. Start with his kingdom. Start with his will. Then make your petitions known. Oh man, that's so helpful. Because then I might actually pray for the things I need instead of the things I want. So, having started with the glory of God, now move to us. What does that tell us? We're not the center of the universe and it ain't about us. It's about God. But here, God does care about your daily needs. God's not blind to what you need. And he's not waiting for you to tell him. He knows. That's how much he loves and cares for you. Is that he knows what you need. He gives what you need. And all he calls on us to do is to ask. Lay it before him. So the focus of this petition is daily bread. Well, what was bread? Bread was what was necessary to sustain life. It's what you need to exist. How often do you go to God in prayer for the things simply to stay alive for today? Making that your number one petition. See, he's speaking of necessity, not luxury. Not abundance. He's speaking of need. And we are truly dependent upon God just to exist another second in life. I don't know how often we think about this. I'm really glad that God sustains me because when I'm asleep, I'm a really easy target. You know what I mean? If it's up to me to carry me through, you'd wake up every 30 seconds going, oh, am I still alive? I'm really glad that God cares for me enough that I can sleep at least six hours, knowing he's got me. He's taking care of me. He knows what I need to exist. And so we pray. We pray God would supply what we need. But notice, it's also referring to daily bread. I believe this is talking about the bread we need just to get through today. Does anybody else see a picture of this in the Old Testament anywhere? Okay, tell me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. Who needed that? Boy, that just, that'll wreck your soul. Where does that phrase come from? Where's the idea of bread, daily bread come from? Exactly. They were wandering in the wilderness, weren't they? They were going to die if they didn't eat. So what did God give them? He gave them bread. He didn't just give them bread. He gave them daily bread that would rot if you kept it longer than a day. Okay, you don't think God's teaching us something? Remember, they were going to wander for 40 years. So every day, don't take any more than just for today. What did the people do? And it would rot. Because God was teaching them, you need to depend on me every day for what you need to live and I'll give it to you if you just trust me. And so often we go in praying for, I need a thousand bucks, I need another car, I need more homes, I need everything, I need you to pile it up, God, I need you to pile it up. Instead of just asking God, I need to get through today without dying, can you help me with that? I need to live past four o'clock, can you arrange that for me? It's really hard for us to understand. We lose sight of this because we live in a context where we don't struggle for daily bread for the most part. I got plenty in my cabinet at home. 
I'm not worried this morning whether I'm going to have anything to eat tonight. Even if I ain't got it in my cabinet, I'll go out to the drive-thru and grab something. We don't live in a culture, in a context where we have to have bread just to get by. But imagine those who do. Imagine. So we as the people of God might need reminders from God that we still need Him every day just to exist. And it's not just an amount of food that you have. I think it's the heart of thankfulness behind it. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite theologians, says, We are here taught to acknowledge our entire dependence on God for the, for the supply of our daily necessities. As Israel required daily manna, so we require daily bread. We confess that we are poor, weak creatures in need and beseech our Maker to take care of us. We ask for bread as the simplest of our wants, and in that word we include all that our bodies require. See, in our prayers, we come to God as hungry children come to their father for daily food. And while we may have a lot in our cabinets and dinner tables, we have to realize that the food that we even have in abundance is not ours. It's because God gave it to us. The God who upholds our universe. The God who gives. And we need constant reminders that we need to desperately cling to our Father for life itself. And his quiet sustaining of our lives should captivate us. So in our prayers we express a godly desire for God's gracious daily provision that sustains our lives and brings, and brings blessing and strength from him. So what does that look for us, like for us as a church? Well it means that we're going to pray just for what we need to exist for God's kingdom. That we as a church aren't, aren't praying that God would just heap up super abundance in this place, but that God would help us to be dependent on him just for our daily lives. Just for our church's daily existence, we would cling to him. And we would pray out of a desire for his kingdom. Number four, we pray for forgiveness. Oh man, we could do this for a long time. I'm going to have to go a lot faster. Pray, we're going to pray for forgiveness. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus says, And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. The emphasis of this verse is our debts. Don't look at your neighbor. Don't look at your family. Look at your debt. God, forgive us of our debts. And as we pray that God would be honored, that his reign would increasingly be displayed, that his, that his perfect provision would be brought, that we would come face to face also with our weaknesses again. And we are captivated by the daily life-sustaining provision of our Father. And now when we see that, as we're captivated by that, we see even clearer how ugly our self-dependence looks. Now this is not talking about the forgiveness of justification, to be right with Jesus. Jesus is teaching on the character of one who is a follower of his already. But our justification doesn't mean that we walk perfectly in the world free from any stain of sin. John, 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, who's he talking to? Believers. So as believers, while we have been justified by Jesus through seeking forgiveness in him, we still need forgiveness every day because we walk in a world where we are marred by the stain of sin over and over again. Jesus knows our daily battle with the guilt that comes from our sin, the weariness and struggle that comes from this constant fight. He knows we're prone to walk in the footsteps of 
Adam and flee from God to hide in shame. What does Jesus call his disciples to do? Run back to your father in prayer, knowing he loves to forgive. Don't act like you're perfect because you're not. Run to God who loves you and forgives. And I think one of the things, one of the things we can do is we can ask ourselves, when you look at the example that Jesus gives of forgiveness, how do we look? And remember, these are urgent petitions. We pray that God would forgive us, and we do that without hesitating or delaying. We seek the forgiveness of God when we sin. And he says that we pray for forgiveness as we also have forgiven our debtors. I think that's talking about a comparison. Another way of saying it might be, God, deal with me as I deal with others around me. Now, there's a scary thought. God, forgive me by the same way that I forgive other people. See, as believers, we should be forgiving others as we have been forgiven by God, and we certainly are pointed to our dependence on Him for that through our prayers. So in our prayers, we express a godly desire for a greater awareness of our sins and for God's gracious forgiveness extended to His children. Finally, number five, we pray for God's protection. Jesus says, pray like this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word for temptation means a test or a trial. And again, the verse shows the continued focus on the greatness and glory of God and our weakness and frailty. We seek God's protection because we believe we need it because we can't protect ourselves. As believers, we pray for God's protection because we desire to be separated from evil. Deliver us, he says, from evil. We acknowledge our inability to conquer sin on our own. And our desperate need for God. And we need that protection urgently because evil is all around us. It abounds. In prayer, as believers, we run to the only one who's able to guard us and keep us in righteousness. By his mighty power which he lovingly gives to his children through his spirit. And the one who tests us is also the one who delivers us by his powerful hand. It all flows from a recognition of the glory of God, His reign being displayed, His daily provision, His wonderful forgiveness, and now His protection. See, I believe what we see here is a picture of two hearts in prayer, one prideful and self-righteous and the other humble and God-honoring. We see it also in Luke chapter 18 when we're told of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus said, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the story he gave. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went, away, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, we have to be careful that as Christians we don't declare that same heart that says, God, I thank you I'm not as bad as other people. God, I thank you that I'm kind of cleaner than everyone else. God, I thank you that I can kind of handle my own. 
But then instead, the heart we would display is not the one of the hypocrite and the Gentile who prays that people would look at them and think they're great. But we'd pray because we need God. Because he's awesome, he's mighty, he's majestic. And we love him so much that we come to him in prayer independence and we ask him that his kingdom would be accomplished. His will would be done. That we might have our daily needs met. Not because we can do it, but because we can't do it. And we need him to even exist. We pray that God would fervently give us his forgiveness day after day. As we continue to walk in holiness while stumbling along the way. We run to our Father for forgiveness. And that we would pray that God would protect us from evil. That he would help us to honor him. That while he tests us, he would use those tests to bring us to greater dependence on him instead of dependence on ourselves. That there's only two hearts we can have. Either the self-righteous one that loves glory for ourselves or the one that prays because we just want to honor God. The one who prays because we just love him that much. And even if he doesn't give us what we want, if he just extends and gives us what we need to live, then we have enough to praise him forever. That he is the one who can forgive us even when we continue to fail. That he doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't disown his children. He loves us and says, when you sin, don't flee like Adam. Run to your father. Find his forgiveness. Give him glory because he's great. There's only two hearts. Oh, that we would display the heart that truly loves and stands in awe of our God. Just so you know, one of the best ways to do this real quick is by praying the Bible. Praying the Word of God. Because where else do we learn about how awesome and wonderful God is? Where else do we learn about His kingdom and His will? Where else do we learn about our need for daily bread? Where else do we learn about our need for forgiveness and His protection? But from His Word. So one of the best things we can do is pray His Word back to Him. One of the best ways I've seen this done is from Donald Whitney, who is a professor at Southern Seminary, who wrote a book called Praying the Scriptures. And he, he walks you through how to pray through the Psalms and other parts of the Bible. You saw us do this when COVID broke out. I would go on Facebook and I would, we would do prayers together where we prayed each day for a particular Psalm. That's a great way to spend time praying and to make our prayers effective because we're not praying for ourselves. We're praying God's Word back. One thing we're going to ask you to do is to take prayer seriously. As a church, we need to pray. We need to pray for our church. We need to pray for God's glory to be demonstrated here and that our priorities would be His. So one thing I'm going to ask you to do is starting next week, probably next Sunday, I'm going to ask you to spend 31 days praying for our church. And I'm going to help you do it. There's going to be an app you can download onto your phone, 31 Days of Prayer for Your Church. I'm going to give that to you, so make sure that on Wednesday you touch base with me and I'll make sure to get that to you. If you want to find out today, let me know. I'm going to ask you to download that this week. If you say, Jason, I don't download things onto a phone, I don't have access to that, I don't want to do it that way, just so you know, we're going to be posting it every day on Facebook. You can see the prayer of the day there. But what I'm going to ask you to do is, boy, is there a better time to pray for Fairhaven than right now? To pray that we would be about God's glory and his business. So I'm asking you, for 31 days as a believer, would you lift up this church? Pray for one another. Pray that we would see God's hand at work and see his kingdom spread.
I'm going to ask you to do that for 31 days starting next week because what grace is ours through the prayer that God allows us to give? What grace we experience from being able to call upon our God? And here's what I want for you this morning. It does not matter what your background is or how much money you have or what kind of circumstances you're walking through. The only thing that matters is whether you're trusting in Jesus or not. See, only the one who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus can actually call God our Father. See, we can't please God in our prayers if we're not in Him. Because what does it lack? Point number one, that we would stand in awe and honor of God. So this prayer is not meant to be a way that you can pray to get God to love you. Or you could pray this to get God to, to somehow show favor to you. This prayer is meant for God's people. And you cannot honor God apart from Jesus. And apart from Jesus, we have no standing before God to make our petitions. So I'm encouraging, pleading with everyone in the room, that you would know God, that you would know Christ. And as believers, do our prayers display the concepts we've looked at this morning? Do we see our weaknesses and sins do we run to God for the grace only He can give? Do, do we make prayer about ourselves or do we enter into the presence of our Father with humble hearts, standing in awe and wonder at His majesty? Do we see our desperate need for His will to be done, not ours? Do we trust He will provide what we need according to His good purposes? Do our lives reflect a crucial dependence on God? From God's Word, He beckons us to come as His children, Lay your petitions before him. Honor him, glorify him, and find the grace you need to live daily for his glory. This morning, we need to run to God. Whether it's for the first time or the millionth time, we need to run to God and declare our dependence on him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that from your words you show us this simple model of what honors and glorifies you when we pray. And Father, so often we can make prayer about ourselves, we can make prayer about what we ultimately desire above all, and Father, I thank you that from your word you show us that it is your will that matters. It's your kingdom that we desire. And Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to run to you. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, would they see their sin and their weakness and their desperate need for you, and would they run to you, seeking forgiveness in Christ alone? And Father, for us as Christians, would you help us this morning to see that, God, you supply every need. God, you are trustworthy. And we run to you in prayer because we want to honor and glorify you. We stand in awe of who you are. And we ask you, God, to provide as only you can. Oh, Lord, we pray that you alone would receive honor and glory. Lord, may we respond to you today out of dependence. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. We're going to